Hi, I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. This week, my guests are Keith Dallas and John Wells. Keith is the editor of the American Comic Book Chronicle series, for which I wrote parts of the 1970s, 80s, and 90s volume. John is one of our best writers for that series, having written the two 1960s volumes, as well as uh, being a, an important contributor to every other volume in the series. John's knowledge of comics history is unparalleled. It's astonishing. And as you'll hear in the next hour, John has a lot of interesting stories to tell about his comics collecting, and Keith and I have a lot to share about working on this series. Hope you enjoy this episode. Please leave show notes on iTunes and enjoy. Well, welcome to uh, Classic Comics Cavalcade. I can't think of two more appropriate people talk about classic comics than my friends Keith and John. Why don't you guys introduce yourselves? I'm John Wells, and I am currently the writer of, um, of Comic Book Implosion with my friend Keith Dallas, and in the past I've written American Comic Book Chronicles 1960-64 um, and 65-69, and that's just some of the stuff I've done. I'll let Keith talk. Yeah, that's, you know, John's being his usual modest self. <laughs> uh, uh, I am Keith Dallas. I, uh, like John said, uh, co-authored uh, Comic Book Implosion. I've been the editor-in-chief of American Comic Book Chronicles since its inception. Um, and before that, I wrote, uh, the, I should say wrote, I edited uh, the Flash Companion for Tomorrow's. That was the start of my uh, Tomorrow's career. Which both of us were involved in as well. Yes, yes. Congratulations on your nomination for an Eisner for the book, Comic Book Implosion. Thank you. Thank that, you. Uh, that, was, that was a nice day. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was when John Morrow gave us that phone call. Why don't we start with that? Uh, tell me how that book came about. So, okay, uh, this actually emerged from our work, Jason, on the 1970s volume, where, you know, I, I was working on the 1978 chapter, uh, as is the norm, I reached out to John Wells for some, you know, some resources, some information, <clears throat> and I realized as I was putting together, as I was drafting the DC explosion slash implosion section that there was so much more to be said about arguably, you know, one of the most infamous events in comic book history. And so I planted the seed in, in John Wells's head that, you know, we should try to, you know, put out a book about the comic book, about the DC um, explosion uh, trying to figure out how to do that without, you know, because the, you know, tomorrow's companion line had ended. Geez, what, what was the last companion book? Had to be one of Roy's books, right? Had to be like. What Probably do you think, John? The fourth All Star Companion, or uh, or maybe the Hawkman Companion. Yeah, I think it may have been Hawkman. Too. Yeah. Oh, it was Hawkman? Okay, I thought it was maybe like John said, like All Star, the All Star Companion volume four but it was one of those two yeah. I mean, Flash Companion uh, was right before that I know that was you know the so it, it ended 2009 and I knew John wasn't going to just sort of resurrect the, the DC Companion line for, for our sake so we had to figure out a way to create this book so that it's not just a DC centric book and I I John, I believe it was my idea to sort of thread together a bunch of, you know, as many interview quotations as possible. Does that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, th I think the part... original. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, you go ahead, John. Uh, the original plan, I think, was to do more um, present day interviews than we ended up doing. But I found so much good interview material from the period 
Yeah, that it wound up we didn't actually have to do a lot of a lot of fresh interviews. Right. And that's right. actually and fr- that's actually something I always enjoy with the books is getting the contemporary thoughts because people's memories just get changed over the yeah. years. Exactly. I think that's something that all three of us has have, you know learned with American Comic Chronicles that you 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 ask Mark Wolfman in 2019 about something that happened in 1983 and he gives you you know what I I really can't remember so it's it's better just to go back to an interview that was published in 1983 you know and um so so that was in like late, it was either late 2013 or early 2014 when I, uh, when John Wells and I started to toss around this idea. And then I know John, you were, you were involved in a bunch of products. So we sort of kept pushing it off year after yeah. year. And finally I told him at the end of 2017, I said, listen, I got to pitch this. It's, it's now or never. Because 2018 is the 40th anniversary, yeah. Uh, and I said, I'm, you know, and John Wells, not John Morrow. I got to, I sort of got to distinguish between John Wells and John Morrow. Uh, John Wells, like, yeah, well, you know, if you if you feel like doing it without me, you know, feel. I'm like, no, 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 no. This is a we, or we're not doing this at all. So I think I think that was the right guilt trip to give John to get him to commit to the book because i know you you were doing a bunch of stuff then right john yeah yes okay so that's my superpower is, is roping john into things <laughs> that he just does not have time to do right uh and we you know uh pitched it to john morrow and and he he really i think he both liked the the topic the timing, you know, that it's here's a book that's going to be, you know, released essentially on the 40th anniversary of, of the event. But I, I, I'm pretty sure he also was really intrigued by the format, especially since he, he was working on his own sort of oral narrative. I think, you know, if we're going to play semantics, it's really not an oral history, but okay, we'll call it, you know, an oral narrative for lack of a better term that, you know, because he was working on the whole, you know, Jack Kirby, Stan Lee oral narrative that he, you know, so he said, get to it. And we did, and the rest is history. And the next problem was kind of prodding John to make sure it was published actually on the, in the summer on the 40th anniversary. Right. Because for call right. originally he was talking about releasing it in the fall. And my concern was that other people were going to have retrospectives out before our book was published. So. Right. Well, and I think it ended up being the definitive retrospective. John, you had so much material. I assume that's that's your collection of material that you're excerpting for this collection. Um, let's see. Um, you mean artwork? No, no, I mean the original interviews from the various publications oh, of the yeah. time. Um, yeah, a lot of those are all out of, out of the fanzines in my own collection. And also, you were using uh, articles because um, you had written some DC explosion articles for Comics Buyer's Guide, right? And we, and yeah, we correct. Yeah, I actually wrote them. back um, oh, probably around '94. I wrote this this series of articles called Lost DC for for the Comics Buyer's Guide, and one of them was devoted strictly to the, um, the DC implosion. And so, a lot of that was kind of like my foundation for for starting the book. Okay, so you didn't start totally fresh. I kind of built on it for the book and expanded it. So were you reading comics at the time of the DC implosion? Do you remember it from Uh, your childhood? Yeah. Yeah, I I was collector. Well, I was reading before I could read, let's put that, because I was getting Disney (laughs) probably as early as 1968, but I didn't start start, um, kindergarten until 69. But then I kind of shifted to DC in 1974, so... So, like you say, I was I was very into DC by the time the the explosion and the implosion came along. What's your memory of that time period? Well, I I remember I had no idea what was going on because I I didn't start subscribing to any fanzines until probably nineteen eighty one. So all I knew was that one month um, the DCs were fifty cents and the next month they were forty cents, and they shrunk back to the old size. I had no idea what happened, 
and I know there were books that just never showed up. And I think the first that I discovered what had happened, I think, um, was in one of um, Bob Rosakis's um, Answer Man columns that um, somebody mentioned what had happened. I think that was the first reference to canceled comic um, comics cavalcade that I read. Mm. So I, I was. Um in middle school, I think, at the time of the implosion. And I have such distinct memories of looking forward to the new series, especially some of the backups. Um, I was really digging stuff like Jim Starlin's OMAC. And I just remember this feeling of whiplash that all of a sudden this thing that I, that I was so excited about just completely dropped away, it disappeared. Yeah. Was that how it felt for you as well? It was, yes. Um, and yet it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily immediate overnight either. Uh, I thought that was great scholarship in the book. It was three months. So it lasted, uh, that explosion lasted three months. And then once September rolled around, uh, like John said, it it dropped down to 40 cents. Even more than that though, uh, John, you talked a lot about how there was a, was 28 cancellations in the year and a half before the implosion too? Right, right. There were actually cancellations all along, um, and a lot of that stuff, especially the stuff which you get into early 1978, kind of gets lumped in with the implosion. But those books would have been canceled regardless, right? And so it was. But was keep going, please. Was really, really in a lot of turmoil that time, just because of the sales in general. And Marvel too. Yes, exactly, and that's something that gets completely lost. Uh, but that was one of the things that we pointed out in the. In the back end of the book is that Marvel canceled um, something like two dozen titles in the months afterwards, and, and nobody even noticed that, that, that they canceled almost as many books as DC did. Yeah, I think that's one of the old, like John said, one of, one of the old book points we made near the end of the book is that uh, it's not like uh, Marvel could, you know, be, you know, doing their touchdown dance over... DC's misfortune because they were experiencing the same misfortune and um, just not getting the same press. You know, in retrospect, I wish we had covered that maybe in a little more detail in the 1970s book. Well, uh, we ran out of words. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and that's sort of the, I mean, with every volume, it's, it's a, you know, <clears throat> this, is the, this is one of the challenges of every volume of American Comic Chronicles is that you, you have a limited amount of space. Um, yeah, yes, with the 60s volumes and the 40s volumes, it's split between two volumes. But um, even then, you're still omitting things by, you know, um, d- because you have to. Just, you know. We, I don't know if, if John remembers this, there was, there was at one point I was floating the idea of doing these annuals, of pitching to John Morrow annuals of you know okay so just a uh, like a like a hundred page book about 1981 and then so you basically using the chapters of american comic chronicles and expanding them uh and then i ultimately decided you know what john is not going to go for that idea because it's essentially he's creating a product that's competing against his own product so uh, and you know I've played with that idea, too, because it's something that would be great to sell at conventions. The problem with the ACBC is that the price point is so high, it's hard to get yeah. casual buyers to pick it up. Um, and I think if we had like a $10 price point book, um, they could really sell very well at conventions. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, sure. Um, um, but, John, talk a bit about the the research that went into Comic Book Implosion, how you built the narrative. What really um, surprised you as you were doing your research on it? You want to tell that, John? You want me to take it? Let's see. Um, well, I, I can say that the, the one of the, the things that I thought was the most surprising or interesting to me was something that we discovered very late in the in the story was that everybody always talks about the blizzards and what an impact they had on, on the sales, and that's what led to the implosion. But what I discovered, um, I say very late in the game, was a, a Mike Gold interview that he'd done um, – in um, um, one of the super graphics um, magazines, and he he discussed in depth exactly what happened. And basically, the blizzards 
but that wasn't the end of the story. Basically, I'm thinking they probably understood, okay, it was the weather that was the problem, but then they decided, we're going to look back at DC sales the last couple of years. And what they discovered was that sales had been going down progressively in that time, and it had been kind of disguised in the overall sales figures because DC published more comic books to offset the fact that the individual titles were going down in sales. And so all of a sudden they said, well, this is a problem. So you need to get rid of the lesser selling titles and shore up your, your better selling ones so that the sales can go up. And that's something that's never really come out. I think people just think, oh, well, Warners didn't really understand what was going on, and they just thought that the sales were bad in general. But that wasn't the case. Do you think they would have killed the entire line if, it, if Superman the movie hadn't been successful? Um, I don't know if Jeanette would have allowed that. question. You know? Because I sometimes play with this narrative that basically Superman saved DC and Star Wars saved Marvel. But I think that's oversimplifying it a little bit. I do think Superman maybe played a little bit of a, a factor in it as far as they had this big movie coming up and they didn't want a bunch of bad press on top of everything else. So I know that's one of the, the quotes that we discovered is that... Um, there apparently was some concern for Jeanette's job, but they didn't want the bad press that would have come with that. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else that really surprised you in your research? Anything that you, any series that you found yourself really tantalized by that you wish you had been able to see in the subsequent 40 years? Uh, Shave the Changing Man. Yeah. That, that's, that's my number one. I've always wished that Ditko could have finished that. Because uh, I was just really hooked on that series, and it just stopped. Mm. And even the story in um, Cancel Comic Cavalcade doesn't really bring the story forward a lot more. At the end of that, Shade finally gets back to Earth, and things were going to get moved again, and we just never see what happens. Right. I've always I thought... think that's probably Ditko's um, Unfinished Symphony. I've always thought that's the ultimate Steve Ditko comic, too, because he's the ultimate loner hero. Yeah. And, and it's just carried off with such panache, you know. There's so much energy in that. And it's it's so complex, um, and there's so many things going on. Yeah, the world building is wonderful. Yes, yes. Um, I I I almost wonder if the work that was published in Class, Classic Comics Cavalcade um, became more legendary because it was never published, though. If we had seen, I don't oh, know, yeah. the Vixen or something. If uh, she would have had nearly the cachet she does now, I have to agree. Yeah, I think I think there's a mystique attached to it that probably a lot of the stuff doesn't deserve. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's the revealing quote that you know Mark Wade said. You know, once he finally became an editor, he, he was able to access this material, and he was like, "Yeah, this was sort of bad. <laughs> a lot of this material really wasn't, you know, really." It's almost, you know, the DC implosion did history a favor by <laughs> making sure it didn't, you know, <laughs> didn't see the light of day, or at least, you know, you know, as as John puts it, you know, we you know we had that section of where this material ended up, but, um, you know, and that's, I mean, that's why I like some of the voices within the text, like uh, Michael T. Gilbert. Uh, mm-hmm. Just flat out was not impressed with DC during the mid seventies, late seventies, and I sort of like having that counter voice, you know, c- compared to say Tom Brevard or Mike, uh, uh, Mike Mark Wade or uh, Kurt Busiek, who were obviously devoted DC readers at the time. There was an awful lot of just run in the mill stuff being published by DC at that time. Uh, the stuff like the revival of Mr. Miracle, which technically, I guess, didn't get canceled in the implosion, but was canceled at the time of the implosion, if I remember right. Um, it, was, it was on the verge. I think it probably would have been canceled anyway, um, but it technically wasn't like on the... It was, it was probably canceled a couple of weeks before Warner decided to kill the, the whole 50-cent experiment. Yeah. Um, but they they actually were in, on the verge of preparing the first uh, fifty cent issue of Mister Miracle, so so it was close um, because they got to the point they had Michael Golden draw the cover, and um, Len Wein was going to write write the um, the series, and then um, let's see, Joe Orlando I think was 
that's the and that's the series that I loved at that point. Looking back, that's the the final couple issues written by Steve Gerber was actually probably those, the best way to go out. You know, those are probably my first exposure. Other, other than I think I maybe had written had read the um, DC Comics Presents issue that was published afterwards. But the first issues of actual Mister Miracle that I read were the, the two Gerber Golden issues, and those are two of the most brilliant Mister Miracle stories I've ever read. They are. Uh, they're really worth seeking out. They're just beautifully drawn to with the golden Russ Heath, I believe. Just, Russ, Russ, Russ Heath was a perfect person to, to ink Michael Golden. It's a surprising yeah, combo. What, what a combo. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, because they each complement each other so well. Yes. But, but, I mean, that stands out because <laughs> there probably would have been six books in the 50-cent line that were inked by Vince Coletta, destroying everything yeah. in front yeah. of him. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it sounds like that was a, a kind of a dream project for you, for both of you. Yes. Uh, yeah, you know, well, I mean, John might have had a, a different feeling. I mean, for me, it was sort of, you know, again, as I was working on the, that 1978 chapter, and I it just, this idea sort of uh, really... You know, I, it just sort of like, oh, you know, because I'm always thinking of, I'm always trying to think of books and projects to pitch to John Marl mm-hmm. and John Wells. And, uh, and I was just like, oh, you know, I think this would be really cool. And then, you know, as the months would go by and I'm thinking of, you know, how else, you know, to execute the book. So not necessarily a dream. I mean, Flash Companion was a dream project for me because that's, I mean, that, that was my that was the superhero that I adored growing up. So that's, that's the book that I really, uh, loved putting together with you guys. Um, but with the, with the comic book implosion, it's more of a, you know what I think, you know, especially because of the American comic book chronicles being narratives, being straightforward narratives and just getting, just momentarily getting away from that format to, you know, try to, pull off uh, a book that is just threading together interview quotations from, you know, various people. Uh, I, I definitely got a kick out of that. Uh, but that's my expect- perspective, John. Yours, I mean, it's for you, uh, I guess, uh, more of a trip down memory lane. Well, actually, this was kind of a dream project for me. But because um, I've always, like you say, that was the reason I wrote that, that original um DC implosion article back in the 90s but I my my thing was I never imagined it would happen because I was sure that DC's lawyers would crush any idea of ever writing something like that right yeah it was I I will say I'm sorry Jason I mean I I will say that I I was when we pitched this to John Morrow I was expecting that type of pushback you know of well you know we're not doing a DC centric book and you know, and um, John, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't really, I mean, I, I, I always feel like John Morrow trusted us to, to make sure that there was not just DC content within the book. Because I, I don't remember him actually voicing a concern about... No. Yeah. So, was, I mean... Just, just a matter of clarifying, like, how many... How many um, DC images versus other DC or non-DC images and things like that. And right. So, and we, we knew all that going in, so so we were able to construct the narrative accordingly. Yeah, so I think he just trusted us with that. I mean, you know, that, that we had done enough for him that he, that he trusted us to know, okay, look, what we can and can't get away with. I still feel we sort of tricked him into publishing a, a DC Explosion Companion, but... You know, uh, there is there is enough, and and most people who see that cover, uh, in, you know, I recognize that image who, right away. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, if you if you've lived through those years, you you recognize the silhouettes, you recognize the house set, which um, even though we took Adam out, uh, <laughs> because. We did that because John. We felt it just sort of ruined the 
it ruined the composition, I think, is, is what... Um, I don't recall if we discussed that, but that might have been a decision on Richard's part. Possible. Okay, right. Either either Rich did that or... or uh, I think it was John Morrow who came up with the idea of, of putting them in different colors, which is, you know, absolutely, because okay. that, that, you know, pops off. That makes that cover so much more... Uh, appealing than if it was just like you know black and it's, white it's or, a very it's a very attractive cover even if you don't have any idea who the characters are right right and, it's full, and, I, and it was it was john Morrow's idea to put dc comics in the subtitle which that i'm shocked that we get right yeah okay yeah. that was you know what I'll, I'll let him handle the legal stuff <laughs> yeah every time i look at the cover of the acbc books i'm like where's the marvel and dc stuff oh yeah right now in the first 40s volume uh, there is a image of um, All-Star Comics. Okay. Uh, All-Star Comics number three, which I, because which surprised me, because again, since the beginning, the standing order has been no no Marvel DC books on display there. And yeah, so... That, that actually if, caught my eye, too. Yeah. Yeah, so this is either John Morrow saying let's see what we can get away with or John Morrow maybe not paying close attention huh. we'll find out is that going to be out in time for San Diego this year or oh yeah yep, okay. yep, yep. it's at the printer now it should be jeez uh, I'll have to uh, check with uh, uh, John Morrow about this but uh, yeah I mean it's uh, it, it was sent to the printer jeez six weeks ago so okay. early early April I can't wait to have that book on my shelf John, your books, your 60s books, along with Bill's 50s books, really changed my view of that, of each of those decades. Um, I was really, I really enjoyed how the format of these books allowed you to go maybe a little bit against the standard narrative grain of how we think of the 1960s. Um, the way you discussed uh, not just the Marvel and DC stuff, but all the publishers of the era was uh, enlightening. Thank you very much. Um, that was it. Was kind of my original way way back when this first was pitched. I wanted the seventies, and the seventies was already spoken for. So, so I took the seventies. But that was that was kind of one of the things that I wanted for myself. I wanted to learn things when I was doing it, and so that was kind of like a challenge to myself to find things I didn't know and include those besides all the stuff I was familiar with. So I made myself a massive, massive list right at the get go of everything I wanted to talk about. And so then I start digging into all these, these nooks and crannies that usually don't get discussed. So how did you do that research? What kind of resources um, did you find? Um, I'm trying to think where all the places I looked to begin with. I, I think even, even at this point I was using, um, like, um, the Mike's amazing, um, world of comics website. Invaluable. And, um, I couldn't have done yeah, my yeah, book without and, it. And so I just kind of like went month by month and started jotting down notes. And then I started flipping through um, Carl Gafford that um, used to be a DC colorist, um, has published um, like a month-by-month month month survey of the 60s in Kappa Alpha. And so I flipped through that, and I, I jotted down notes of significant events there. And then I have an old notebook that's full of, like, like dates. And so I copied things out of that that took place in the 60s. And, so, and then as I was going through fanzines um, ahead of time, I would say, oh, this happened, so I would make myself a note to refer back to this when I actually started writing the manuscript. So so I had, like I say, reams of, of just raw material to, to start myself with. And then, then the challenge was like beating it all into a narrative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That, that was something that, that Keith liked to challenge me on, was to, because you have so many disconnected things. with like, how do you flow from one subject to another? So right. The transition. So he started yeah. enjoying how... how how I would transition from one thing to another. So, right. so sometimes I wouldn't do that, and so he would like send the manuscript back and say, you can do better than that. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, oh, yes. I went through that uh, quite a bit myself. I Did Keith challenge you to come up with narratives that flow through the entire decade, too? Yes. Because um, I love the idea of telling it almost as a nonfiction novel of a decade. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, that was that a piece was of advice that you too. gave that really stuck in my head as I was doing every word of it. 
Yeah, I wanted to read like a history novel. You know, yeah. it's, you know, I've, you know, I, I, I figured if I said it to you, Jason, or to or to Bill, uh, that uh, you know, in, instead of instead of writing, say, the history of the Civil War, you're writing the history of the comic book industry. So, but it should read like that. It should read like uh, you know a nonfiction history novel. Um, rather than just say, you know, a list of facts and things like that, you know, it's, um, or, um, I think that the thing I, I stress with a bunch of people is, is so like, it can't, it can't read like a, a series of Wikipedia entries. It mm-hmm. has to read, you know, like an ongoing story. So with one year following into next year, following into next year, you know, yeah, I mean, and that worked really in my favor in a few ways writing about the 90s because, for instance, um, the histories of both Valiant Comics and Jim Shooter were so intertwined and spent through the entire yes. decade. So I always made a point of getting back to each of those narratives at, at some point, and they seemed almost a microcosm at various points of the entire decade. Yeah. Um, John, what were some of the things that you... Uh, used in your 60s book in the same way? Um, let's see. Well, I know for that second 60s volume, John, with the, with the Batman TV show, using how the, the Batman TV show impacted not just DC Comics, but the entire, you know, industry. The entire industry, yeah. And so then you had that, that slow fall. It was kind of the rise and fall because you had, had comic, comics being influenced by the by the media, because right. even before the Batman TV show came on, you had like like these two big big um, newspaper articles about comics that were appearing. Which one one was old comics are worth lots of money because that was like <laughs> a new phenomenon, and that was that was that was story one. Story two was, was this upstart called Marvel Comics, mm-hmm. and you had these two stories competing for attention, get everybody everybody's attention, and so then Batman comes along and just kind of boosts everything more. And then you have this plunge once Batman um, kind of the, the fad burned off, and then it was like, where do we go from here? Yeah. Well, the boom and bust just applies to almost every volume of this series, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that was educational to me how that there was this sort of in the late '60s, you know, in those final years of the '60s, this sense of um, despondency. Mm-hmm. That Jason, that you and I addressed in, in the 1970s volume, and addressed again in the 1990s volume. You know that yeah. th- this sense of you know, and it's we touched course, it on. We touched that, on it in the 80s book too, with the black and white bust after the Ninja Turtles. Right, right, right. And so you you know you you get these periods of uh, these boom periods that unfortunately are spurred on by by speculators, and then once the speculators you know dump off their collections it's it leaves a sort of a wake of destruction so john there was there was a genuine confusion there at the end of the 60s too where the the publishers really did not know what the next big thing was going to be yeah yeah um they thought and you know there was a sense that maybe it was going to be um the horror books right but then there was also um maybe teen humor because archie was huge right um which was which was helped by the the cartoon, and so to the point where where DC was actually um, kind of making even making like Binky and Debbie and all the the logos look look round and just like the Archie logo. Mm. And, and that certainly gets picked up on in the nineteen seventies volume. You know where I'm thinking of um, you know Mort Weisinger uh, retires. And true to his character, he sort of, uh, you know, in his retirement interviews, uh, bragging about the fact that Superman is not selling as well as it was when he was the editor. Right. You know, and, and how, you know, DC had split off. So, you know, Julie was editing one Superman book and. Uh, help me out! I just blanked yeah. out his name. Murray Boltnoff. Thank uh, you, Murray Boltnoff, doing yeah, you know uh, Superboy and, well. and you know and and, and uh, well, you know bad John. Yep. Um, so you, know, you had E. Nelson Bridwell was on Lois Lane. Um, so I think Kirby was basically and editing um, 
Jimmy Olsen after a couple issues. Right. With Murray, Murray Bolton off with kind of the figurehead. On the, but yeah, so you basically had four different people editing Superman. And something that I really like, and I think all, you know, the three of us are, if the three of us can pat each other on the back here, the in the, in that first, um, you know, chapter of the 1970s volume, and I think this is something that the three of us discussed amongst ourselves, you know, you have this legend of, you know, Jack Kirby coming, coming to D.C., taking over Jimmy Olsen, uh, and he took over Jimmy Olsen because it had no, you know, permanent creative team. And if you if you look at our volume, we sort of correct that misconception that no, it did it did have a, a, a somewhat permanent creative team. There were there right. were a writer and artist that were shuffled off. In now, fact, literally, literally, the last comic book work Peak to Stands ever did was was. Um, an issue of Jimmy Olsen before Kirby took over, so he never drew comics again after Kirby right. took over. Now Kirby could very well have been told that yes, there's yes. no, you know, uh, but the the you know, and I I see. And these are the type of things in each volume that you know there, there's certain misconceptions um, that have been perpetuated, and I, I feel that we we've, we've tried our best to um, correct them correct some of the urban myths that that's one of the things that i was proud of in the uh, the first 60s volume because we've well i've heard for since the 70s um the story about how um dc created power girl so marvel created or brought back wonder man right because supposedly this is the story that stan remembered in the in the um the 70s is that dc had had made them kill off wonder man because the name was too similar to wonder woman Right. But in fact, as I discovered in this, this old fanzine interview that, that Roy Thomas had republished in Alter Ego, that wasn't the case at all. It was actually, there was a character called Wonder Man that had appeared in Superman a year earlier, and somebody, I'm guessing it was Mort Weisinger, I don't know, complained to Marvel and said, hey, you're not supposed to be using this character anymore, we already have a character called Wonder Man. Ah, that's, right. That's what, and it's, in fact, uh, and, and it wasn't like um, they changed the, the Avengers story at all because they did kill him off in that story. That was always the plan, but Stan had intended to revive him at a later point, and yeah. he didn't because he got this letter from, from Mort. But anyway, nobody, in fact, if you go to Wikipedia right now, I would be willing to bet it has the Power Girl Wonder Woman story yeah. instead of the actual way it actually happened. But So I'm proud that that's in the, the 60 to 64 volume, what, what really happened. It's and and this is you know something that, um, and I, I I mentioned this or I I discussed this in the essay that I wrote for the uh, World of Tomorrow's book is that when when John Morrow's approved the whole American Comic Chronicles uh, project, uh, neither he nor I nor anyone else associated that you know anyone else that we roped into this, including the two of you, uh, I think we all underestimated uh, how much work was involved with each of these <laughs> volumes, yeah. you know? And the proof, yes. if, the proof, if you can find, I don't know if, um, if either one of you still have, uh, I'm going I'm to presume John Wells does, that a first printing of the first 1960s volume, yeah. not, the, not the second printing, because the second printing is, is, this is not there, but if you go to the uh, to the back of the first printing of the first 1960s volume, it gives a schedule. It gives a release schedule. <laughs> everything was supposed to be published, and by everything, I mean both 1960s volumes, the 1970s, the 1940s, and the 1950s, by the end of 2014. That didn't happen. Yeah, we missed the deadline just by a wee Uh, bit. Yeah, so, and I do have to credit, you know, John Morrow for understanding, you know, because he would ask, you know, and and he's being the diligent publisher. He's, you know, he's trying to, you know, say, okay, you know, he'll, he'll email me every now and then. So what's the update? What's the update? And I'll be very truthful with him and just like, look, there's just stuff here that we're trying to figure out, including what we just mentioned. Like, okay, wait a minute. We have an account 
of this happening. Is this true? Okay, let's verify it. You know, and it's 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 you know approaching it like true historians takes time. It's just, just trying to figure out who, uh, you know, who's got the account, who's got the most accurate account, who's whose account we can trust the most. Um, and why are we trusting his or her account the most? Why aren't we trusting this person's account? And it just takes time to to reconcile all that, as well as putting it all into a narrative. You know, it's right. just... Well, and, and I was continually finding more at the last minute too. Yeah, there's yeah, just always yeah. more. Some would, would yeah. someone would post something on Facebook that suddenly would give me a whole new insight into an event that I hadn't talked about in that way before. Yeah. For me, the big revelation, the biggest revelation that came at the last minute was around Marvel Knights, which now is kind of seen as a preordained thing that essentially changed Marvel in yeah. 1988, 89. But uh, we we were talking about this, Keith. It seems like in that time period, Marvel was looking to farm out large sets of their comics, right. and someone posted that like they had Marvel had shopped and had a tentative deal to have like thirty comics published and created out of the Philippines, if I remember right. Um, and the deal just fell through at the last minute. Otherwise, we would have had you know a cloak and dagger comic published by Filipino creators in that time right. period. Um, there was a uh, Micronauts revival that also didn't get off the ground that was farmed out through a third party. Um, and so, like, that kind of thing just kind of sometimes drops in your lap when you and you just need to keep your eye out for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, when we were doing the 80s book is when Jim Shooter was regularly posting uh, on his website. And one of the bombshell... Um, one of his bombshell posts was when he wrote that Marvel almost um, convinced DC to license its characters, if you remember. Yeah. Uh, and he included you know, where, documentation on it, too. And he had documentation, and I forget if I talked this over, and, and I don't know, if Jason, if you, if you discussed this in your, in your conversations book, uh, but I know John Wells and I discussed it, and, and there are certain things about it that are obviously very convincing, because like you said, he had, he provided, you know, I mean, does Jim Shooter throw anything out? I mean, the, the stuff that he holds on to, my God. Uh, so there are things that, that he has documentation, uh, but, but I end up speaking to a few other people, um, uh, Bob Greenberger was one of them, John, uh, yeah. and uh, Paul Kupperberg was another one, and and they provided their perspective. And you know, ultimately, I I, I would never say that Jim Shooter is lying, but I think there's there, there are things that he was misremembering about that, and I do believe that he came up with a plan to to have say Jim Galton approach Bill Sarnoff and say, Hey, why don't we take, you know, these characters, not, not take these characters, but license these characters from you. So you, you don't, you don't have to worry about the cost of, of producing these comic books. So I do believe that Jim Shooter genuinely came up with this plan, whether or not on the DC end, they were truly, because Jim, the way Jim described it, it was like it was almost a done deal. Mm-hmm. That, that they were going to do it, and then, you know, it fell apart because of, uh, I'm blanking out, but there was something very specific, he says, that made it fall apart. And that, to me, is where the sort of narrative is a bit weak. It's not, or I should say, doesn't convince me. So there's but these are the type of things i mean i throw that out as an example the type of things like you said suddenly somebody writes a post now you've got to incorporate that into your narrative or figure out okay you know let's let's test it out what is you know what is convincing about this what is not convincing why is it not convincing right. you know and and then you know so it's it's became uh you know i i've joked with john morrow that when 
before I started working on American Comic Book Chronicles, I was a very healthy man. <laughs> and now, you know, I am not. <laughs> so, but that also could be a result of having two teenage daughters. So, that, you know, <laughs> things, you know, I have a feeling that my, if, if we had the bet on it, it's probably because of my daughters rather than American Comic Chronicles. <laughs> but, you know, I'll, I'll let you guys know what the doctors say. Yeah, that 90s book, uh, it, w- it didn't kill me. It made me stronger. But, man, that was like four years of solid research. Every yep. weekend, every evening, there was just something else to write for it. And I was very conscious of trying to get every bit of it correct. I'm sure you felt the same way, yeah. too, John. It's like the, oh, yes, yes. The, the details were so crucial. And I haven't, you know, which is, this is surprising, a bit surprising. But I've yet to, I don't know if if anyone's approached you, Jason, or if anyone's contacted you privately. But um, no one has contacted me about the 90s volume, as they did say about the 80s or the 70s, you know, where, like with the 70s, Roy, you know, Roy Thomas contacted us and, was upset about uh, something we wrote about Wolverine, right? And how he, you know, we essentially. Uh, I think it, he he um, he takes issue with certain things that Len uh, Ween has has said about the creation of Wolverine, things like that. And I've yet to hear that in the nineteen. And considering you know, just about everybody associated with the nineteen nineties industry is. Mostly still alive, you know. Yeah. Very yeah. Few are, you know. Yeah, and so the, I don't know. I mean, has anyone contacted you privately and said, "Listen, you screwed this up"? No, no. It's been yeah. kind of shocking how positive everyone has been about it. Um, I yeah. was bracing myself for people claiming and got, for example, the founding of Image incorrect. I had missed one or two important points, but no, nobody has really come to me with that. You know, most of my regrets for the book come from myself, to be honest. There's um, at least three books that were solid 1990s comics that I didn't cover as much as I wish I had. Hellboy, Usagi Yojimbo, and Mark Wade's Run on the Flash. Um, because I covered limited yeah. series and highlights. And, like, Stan Sakai just created Usagi Yojimbo month after month doing incredibly solid work. And he has, like, a paragraph in the entire book. And I just wish that I had done more on that. Um, but I mean, we, we, you know, the book was, I think 185,000 words or something. And I feel like there was easily another 50, 60,000 words that we could have padded it out with and and still missed a lot of stuff. Again, and that's, and that's, that's the challenge, not just with the nineties, that's with every single decade is it becomes, I remember reading a review of the 1980s volume where the reviewer complained that the book doesn't discuss love and rockets in every chapter or in every you know yeah. chapter, and I I'm like, well, obviously love and rockets, an extremely important publication. Um, I we just did not have the space in every single chapter to discuss what was happening year after year with love and rockets. I think I feel. We, you know, the chapter the, where it does introduce Love and Rockets does go into some considerable detail yeah. about, but, and that's, you know, you know, that's where you just sort of, you know, shrug and just say, well, you know, I, what can you do? You Write know, your own book. Write your own book. I mean, that's, we did the 70s right. book and then you broke out and did the DC Implosion book which is more than just DC implosions we were talking about because there's just right. more to be said. So you talked, yeah. you talked at one point about these being survey books and um, that's a good approach to them. I think, Hey John, we've been dominating the conversation. I wanted to ask you something that I've been curious about with the sixties book, which is, do you feel Marvel was kind of preordained to be, to become dominant? What do you think the force was during that decade that enabled Marvel to kind of leapfrog everybody else and go from this little humble house that published Monster Comics in 1960 to being uh, by far the best-selling line outside of Dell by 69? Well, I really think 
part of it was the promotion, um, not just on Stan's part, but like I say, he, just getting his name in the newspapers, like I say, that was that was one of the big big newspaper stories of the of the early 60s, and then it, and more and more so as the, as the decade went on. And then you had word of mouth amongst fans. And then it did speak, and I, I do think it was kind of, kind of preordained, but, but um, they were so, the voice was so different than anything that anyone else was publishing. And it sounded, it sounded like um, the kids of the 60s, basically. And the DCs and everything else were, were more like um, the voice of your parents. Mm-hmm. As opposed to the voice of the kids. Hey, John, so that, that, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, John. Uh, one thing I've, I've never asked you, because um, I know, I mean, you, you've, you know, you've acquired this reputation of being, you know, uh, you know, a DC historian. I wondered what, and and you know, you just recounted, you know, earlier about um, your DC reading habits. Was there what, what's the first Marvel title that you remember? Collecting, reading religiously. I read a few, um, like off the when I when I first started, kind of shifted from um, like the funny animal and the the Archie and the and the humor comics to to DCs. There was there was a, a classmate that was showing me his DCs and his Marvels, and so I kind of gravitated more to the DCs. But I tried a few uh, Marvels off that. I think I had a. Fantastic Four and um, a couple issues of Submariner. Anyway, but the thing that frustrated me is that, that I could not buy a Marvel comic book that was complete in and of itself. Uh-huh. uh-huh. And so I got frustrated oh, with that very quickly. And I, I liked the DCs that you might have liked the backups that were continued from one issue to the next. But basically, you were getting something complete in and of itself. So eventually, and of course, when, when you're 10 years old, you only have so much money to spend, too. So I just kind of made right. the decision. Um, after those first couple months of buying superhero comics, I was just going to strictly get DCs. And so that's basically what I did for a couple of years. And then the Amazing Spider-Man comic strip came out of the newspapers in 1977. Mm. And so I was able to read that every day. Mm. And so I was really getting into Spider-Man. And so then um, we get to the spring of 78. And I would, at this point, I was flipping through some of the Marvels on the, on the spinner racks. And so I read um, what I think was Marv Wolfman's first issue, and the one that ends with Peter Parker giving Mary Jane the box of Cracker Jacks. There's an engagement ring, and I thought, oh, I've got to buy this. <laughs> and so that was the point where I started buying Amazing Spider-Man regularly. Oh, and wow. so then it just kind of flowered from there, and then Fantastic Four was the, the book that I'd remembered reading a couple issues of in 74. Um, in, um, and so I think the first issue that I bought was later in 1978 because they were headed toward an anniversary issue, and I liked the idea of having Fantastic Four 200. Mm. So I think my, my FF run starts, started with 199. And so then it just kind of proceeded from there. And then the um, local library actually had kind of a cool thing. They actually had a spinner rack of comic books. Oh. And I don't know how this, I don't know where they got them, because they didn't have every issue. So, so it became very easy for me to sample Marvel Comics, different series without actually spending any money on them. So, like I said, some of the stuff was old enough that, like, they had issues of Dave Englehart's um, Captain Marvel, which was really entertaining. But, of course, by this point, it was it was long gone. Right. But, um, and so, um, I know one of the books that I would re- I was reading every other issue of, of Claremont and Burns' X-Men. And so, the, the final issue that they had on the spinner rack was, was 134, which ends with Gene becoming Dark Phoenix. And, I had no more. <laughs> I think I have to know how this ends. And so by the time I read this issue, it was like a week or so before X-Men 137 came out. Uh, and so I went to the comic book shop and there it was. And, I, and so that was where my X-Men collection started. But that's how basically I got into most of the Marvel that, that I would sample them at, this libra- at the library. And then I would, if I liked it, then I'd keep, go, go out and start buying them. That's so lucky. Wow. Yeah, sorry, sorry to, to go off on a tangent there, Jason, but that because I've always I've, I've talked to John so much about DC and his his personal history with DC, but never really got the story of of you know him reading Marvel. Podcasts are all about tangents. If you listen to them, like the good <laughs> tangents are the interesting stuff. Um, so what's what surprised you, John, 
Were there any books that you picked up as part of your research for the 60s book that surprised you either positively or negatively? Because you came to it, most of this work later, it sounds like. You, you were yeah, maybe too yeah. young to be reading it during the time. Right. Um, a lot of the stuff, um, oh, my friend Mike Tiefenbacher, that was the editor of the comic, comic reader for many years, um, he, for long before I worked on this, he felt like my, my comics edu- education needed to be expanded, so he'd go to comic book shows and, and get issues of these titles that he loved in the 60s and send them to me, not knowing that I would eventually be using this as research. <laughs> so I had a little bit of a sampling on hand, but there were, even so, there were things that um, I discovered. And this is, this is an obscure book, and I didn't get much attention in the, in the 60s volume, but um, I did not realize that Mike Sikowski basically did a variation of, um, of his Diana Prince work for Gold Key first, which was Jet Dream. I don't know if you even remember. No. That. Tell me more about this. I'm and, a huge Sikowski and, fan. And, and um, it basically is is Diana Prince. Um, you've got the mod outfit, the hairstyle, everything. And um, I think there was there was one issue that Sikowski did, and then there was another issue of, the own, of, of her own comic book that, um, oh, I'm trying to think who drew it. I don't think he drew it, but I think the... Um, I think it was a backup originally in Man from Uncle, but it is is a fascinating. It's kind of like a spy spy thing. It's it's based a little bit on James Bond, but of course the characters are all female. Well, what's that called again? Jet Dream. Jet Dream. Wow. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm sitting in my home office, and actually I have a copy of uh, one of the Archie superhero books, superheroes battle super villains. I was uh, I bought it, to, it hoping it would be okay, and it ended up being far worse than I ever hoped, I ever dreamed it would be. <laughs> that that was in the wake of the Batman TV show, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, a, that, that was that was Archie was trying to to um, interpret what Marvel was doing and, and not getting it at all. John, I'm sorry, John, John. Were you familiar with you were familiar with Thunder Agents before you you were oh, no, very much. Okay. In, okay. Yes. In fact, I'm trying to think when they published um, the archives, although I'd read a lot of Thunder Agents even before that. Actually, I guess back, this is one of the, the things that I used the research tool. In, in the early 80s, um, a writer named Lou Mugen did a survey of all the superhero comics of the 60s in the comic reader, and it was really outstandingly written. So so he hit, like, the Charlton books, um, the Thunder Agents, the, the Archie superhero books, any anything that had a superhero on it in the mid '60s, he covered. So that was that was actually the first time I heard of the Thunder Agents, and so I had kind of an interest in him then. But I think right. um, Mike was probably the first person to actually buy me some issues to read, and then somewhere along the line, I might have read um, Tomorrow's Thunder Agents Companion, the companion by uh, by John Cook, correct. And yeah. then eventually, like DC published all of the archives, so right. I've been able to read everything. Yeah, that's some of the some of the greatest comics of the 1960s, with really an all star roster of creators from oh, that time yeah, period. It really is. Wally mm-hmm. Wood, uh, Ditko, um, Sikowski's in those. Um, yep. Joe Orlando. Uh, the list goes. Gil Kane did some brilliant work on those. The list yep. goes on and on. You know, that actually makes me think of something that did kind of that I did surprise me was that all of these upstart publishers in the in the latter half of the 60s were all going for, everybody remembers the Thunder Agents had this 25-cent giant format, but that was the format that all of these publishers were going for. Mm. Um, like you say, you had um, you know, um, Myron Fast that did all the, the knockoffs like Captain Marvel. Um, he did 25-cent um, books. But that was really the mindset in the in the latter half of the 60s was that the thirty-two cent or thirty-two page package was basically dying, mm. and all these new publishers thought that the only way the comics were going to survive was going to this thicker twenty-five cent package. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what everybody was doing. And yeah, it never really quite clicked. You you would have thought. In fact, um, I was reading pr- um, predictions in the in the comic reader from the late sixties, where um, the publisher at that point, Mark Hannerfeld, was was convinced that that was that was all you're going to be able to find for comic books. And, by the early 70s was was thicker 25 cent packages for comics and it didn't happen yeah i remember in the research for the 70s book there was i think it was in the comic reader where they were talking about 
the explosion of new formats, the tablet tabloid format, the super spectacular format, um, the 80 page giants. Um, they're continually experimenting and somehow comics kept falling back to the 32 page format. Exactly. Uh, obviously Marvel or DC's big bump to 25 cents in 72. Was it? Um, yeah, uh, 71 and 72. Yeah. So they locked, they locked themselves into the format for a year. So then, then when, when Marvel backed out of it, DC was stuck for another year. Right. John, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. You know, you've been the glue, you've been the glue for these books. I've loved it when I got notes on the eighties book or the nineties book rather. And your comments were, everything seems right on, but you need to bring in these specific facts. You know, talk about this Archie book, or talk about what was going on at Charlton, or um, whoever else. And that was so welcome. Um, well, how, how about one in the 70s, when, I know, in one of, one of the chapters Dave wrote, and he's like, uh, it was, uh, what were the Charlton reprints? It was Master Comics, right? Not Master oh, um um, modern, oh, with modern comics, yeah, modern, modern, modern comic. And Dave emailed the three of us. Said, "Yeah, so there's this modern comics thing. I don't, you know, but I can't make heads or tails of it." Next thing we know, here comes, you know, uh, you know, a page from yeah. John Wells. Yeah, like, oh yeah, here. <laughs> it's like, okay, we'll just insert this, you know, and just like you said, Jason, just the glue that the the, the things that you would, you know. The, the information you would get from John Wells is just invaluable and, you know, yeah. thank God, thank God I got introduced to him. My work for these books would have been much weaker without you being part of it. You really just gave, you add so much to them, John. I'll be sure to send a check to each of you after that. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, you should be taping this and then sending it to uh, John Morrow and saying, you know, you need a, a bigger cut. Um, there you go. Yeah, I'll do that too. Right? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> he needs to subscribe to the show, and we need to uh, do more uh, podcasts with John's people. Um, yeah. Keith, uh, what's next for you? Well, so so Bill Shelley is is working on the second 40s volume. Um, he says uh, he's going to be done with it like November 1st. Um, and he wants to just send me the whole manuscript rather than chapter by chapter. And I said, you know, I've been, I could use this break. (laughs) So, well, and if there's uh, one person you can trust, it's Bill. Yeah. Yeah. And and then obviously he's, you know, Bill knows what he's doing. Yeah. And if it was someone who hadn't, like, let's say it was someone we brought in new, let's say, let's say even like Kurt. You know, uh, if, if Kurt had told me that when he was starting the first 40s, I would have been like, oh, well, I sort of really need to get a gauge of how you're going chapter by chapter here. But like I said, it's Bill. He's, he's not only is he, you know, one of the, you know, most highly regarded comic historians around. He's also he's also familiar with the format, so I can trust him. Um, we've got the, uh, the, so the 1980s volume is, um, we're looking to get a second print run of that going via Kickstarter, uh, starting next month. So what, I think it's going from July 10th to August 10th, if I'm remembering the dates correctly. I'm so excited about that. Wait until you guys see this first 40s volume is really, really Yes, yeah, I'm really anxious to, to see it and hold it in my hands. Because particularly with his work, I think dispels the notion that like all 1940s comic book art was crude and unreadable. And I mean, there's there's some images that are just like are just as impressive uh, as anything that came out in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Yeah, that's wow. Okay, I'm very excited about that. Plus, plus, uh, Kurt's been talking about how he's done a lot of research for that book. It sounds like he's got a lot of really interesting insights so that I'm completely looking forward to reading. John, what else are you working on? Um, I really, the only thing I have um, in the immediate future, I've got one article that um, I'm due to write for um, Back Issue 
Um, otherwise, I don't really have anything other than... Oh, now you don't have anything. Oh. Now you don't have anything. And Keith's mind starts percolating. <laughs> what, what, what I have is yeah. a house full of comic books that need to be organized. So, <laughs> <laughs> so have that's, you ever that's thought that's of... Some... John, have you ever thought of pitching like an Archie companion to uh, to John Morrow? I have not. Um, I I actually don't know if, if I have the collection to, okay. to do an Archie companion. I, I was wondering, because, you know, there, there's been a Harvey companion, there's been, you know, and I wonder, someone had to have pitched that. I, I, I would think so, yeah. I think uh, there's a tremendous niche for a book like that, too. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder if, you know, I wonder if there's just a tremendous, but it, it's, I mean, I'd be surprised if mean, it's Archie. But who knows? I mean, maybe they, they have some prohibitive licensing fees for a book like that. But they, um, they seem pretty open these days to, to new ideas. Yeah, uh, yeah, very much so. Oh, thank you.